Well, good morning. My name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here. Our summer series is a look at the book of Proverbs, trying to understand what it means to live well, to live in light of grace. And you might think about Proverbs kind of like the tweets of the Old Testament. One point, 280 characters or less, get on. Which means that to get the biblical wisdom from Proverbs on a topic, we need to look not just at a single proverb, but at all the Proverbs that really relate to that question, even better, to expand to all the texts in the Bible that relate to it. So, our sermon text is these Proverbs that relate to envy, but we're going to spread what we look at throughout both the Old and New Testaments. A couple things we should say before we start. First, you may have noticed that one of the readings used the word jealousy, not the word envy. Now, in English, and it's something that even very well-read writers don't always observe, we technically have a distinction between envy and jealousy. Envy in English is wanting what someone else has. Jealousy is fear that somebody will take what we have. What you need to know is that in Hebrew, they're the same thing. It's the same term. It's the same concept. It's just two sides of the same coin. I also should mention that six years ago, I preached on this topic, but I seriously doubt in the last six years that any of us have fully and finally put away the sin of envy so much that we don't need to come back to this. I sure needed to look at it again. So let's pray together. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to these words from your Scripture, and we pray that you would meet us in them. We beg you would not leave us to just become smarter sinners, but that you would guide us into all truth of mind and heart and hands. We pray it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. So it was in the early 2000s that Emory University primatologist, and I probably should add committed atheist, Franz DeWall, did a now famous experiment with monkeys. First, what he did is he taught the monkeys to buy a slice of cucumber with a little pebble. And the monkeys learned, and they were quite content and happy. They would give their pebble, they would get a piece of cucumber, everything was going great, but then this is what Van der Waal did. One monkey gave its pebble, got its cucumber. The next monkey gave its pebble and received back a nice, fat, sweet, juicy grape. And upon seeing this difference, the first monkey went, well, bananas. Um, in repeated experiments, the first monkey would sometimes refuse to pay. Other times, he would throw the cucumber back in the researcher's face. Because suddenly, he saw that someone else was getting a better deal. What happened? Just a moment ago, he was completely content with his cucumber. And it's, it's a funny story to watch. You can either read it in the journal Nature, or there's a great YouTube video of it that comes from a TED Talk that DeWall did some years later. Um, and it's funny with monkeys, but we, of course, realize that monkeys aren't the only people who go, well, monkey, when they think somebody else is getting a grape instead of a slice of cucumber. We do the same thing. We envy. 
And the Bible in general, and Proverbs in particular, has a lot to say about envy. And here's the takeaway. Here's the end point. The gospel frees us from envy because it lets us live for others, not against them. That the gospel frees us from envy because it lets us live for others, not against them. Now, that's one of those things that is remarkably easy to say and incredibly difficult to do. It's one of these cases where the how probably matters a lot more than the what. And so we're going to look at three hows about envy this morning. Number one, how we all have it. Number two, how it destroys us. And number three, how the gospel frees us from envy. So number one, how we all have it. It's implicit in Proverbs 27, verse 4, one of the texts we read. Anger is cruel and fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Now, recognize the double meaning of that. It's certainly true on the receiving end. To have someone jealous of you is a deeper, more painful, more destructive burn than to have somebody angry at you. But recognize it's also true on the giving end. It is really hard to overcome our own anger, but it might be even more difficult to overcome our own jealousy and envy. Who can stand before it? This certainly borne out by the sheer number of New Testament texts that talk about the question. Um, look, if you would, at Galatians 6 with me. It's one of a huge number of New Testament texts on this. Galatians 6 is one of those passages where Paul is comparing life inside and outside the gospel. I said six, I should have said five. Galatians 5, Paul is talking about this is what it's like to live in the gospel, this is what it's like to live outside the gospel. He does it mainly by giving a list. Listen to the list. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. That's quite a set of bedfellows for envy, isn't it? That's quite a list to be part of. But do you notice at the end of it, after all of that, when Paul has to bring it down to just one thing, what's the thing that he closes with to tell the Galatians? It's envy. Why? Because it comes so easily to us. Um, if you grew up with any number of siblings, you did this and experienced this. If one kid is getting praised by the parents, what do you immediately start doing? Well, you'll start doing whatever they were doing or something else you can do to succeed, so you'll get the praise. Why? Because you want what they have. And if, if you have any doubt this is true, ask anyone who has more than one child. They will tell you this is gospel truth. Envy is so ubiquitous, it seems natural to us. And so let's get personal. Let's talk about real estate, shall we? Um, you know the old saw, you move here, you pay more than double for less than half. 
And I can tell you both rent-wise and mortgage-wise, I can testify it's true. Now, here's what I think is interesting about that. We know that when we're going to move here. We make a conscious decision to downsize. And yet, at least for me, when I had to do it six years ago, it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. When we had to sell the dining room furniture, because frankly, the furniture that fits in a Georgia dining room does not fit in a Northern Virginia dining room, that was a lot harder for me than it should have been. I mean, it's stuff. I mean, it's pretty wood, but it's just stuff. And I had to sit there for quite a long time with the Lord and say, why is this so hard for me? And you know, after a lot of meditation, a lot of biblical study, a lot of prayer, you know what I found out the answer was? I'm just not as spiritually mature as I'd like to think I am. Truth is, we like stuff a lot. And it's so easy to see the house next door and wish that I had it. It's so easy to see your friend's kitchen and say, man, I wish that one were mine. It's so easy to look at the person who decked their house and built this other one and think, wouldn't it be nice? Envy just comes naturally to us. Now, it's, it's possible that you're sitting here saying, look, Bill, of course, I've got my issues. I just don't think this is one of them. Well, maybe, but I doubt it. I, I doubt it simply because we are all, if we follow Jesus, being conformed into his image, but we're not done yet. And if we're not done yet, that means somewhere in us, whether in seed and germ form or whether sprouting fully, it's still there. Because we don't just envy stuff. It can be a situation. When a couple has kids, if one of them chooses to stay home, he or she often envies the spouse who gets to go to work. And of course, the spouse who goes to work is busy envying the spouse who gets to stay home. Or you can envy your own past situation. Or here's one. Both my girls are rock climbers. So twice a week, Jill and I have to go down, one or the other of us, and pick the girls up at the climbing gym. And I've got to tell you all, there is no place that creates body image issues in me like that rock climbing gym. Um, Now, let's be very clear. It is not the gym's fault. This gym is incredibly good about not pushing that, about, in fact, saying every body type belongs here, belongs on the wall climbing, and you see every body type there, I don't need somebody else to create the envy in me. I can gin it up just fine on my own. I walk in, and there are all those different body types, and I immediately zero in on the dude who can do 20 pull-ups, drop off the bar, shake it out for 30 seconds, and do 20 more. And I look at myself and go, don't I wish? Now, they don't even know I exist. I'm just some middle-aged dude picking up his kids. They don't even see me, but I see them, and I envy And I've had to really struggle with what I think of my body when I step into that context. And if it's not physical, if you're at work, we all know who got promoted and who didn't. We all know who got their sales targets and who didn't. We all know the one that's the boss's favorite. It's there. Envy is not somebody else's problem. In the end, envy is my problem. And I dare say it's probably your problem. And so before we go on, let me simply ask the question, where do you envy? This is actually something that's usually fairly easy to diagnose if we're willing to name it what it really is. 
So who do you really wish you were? Or where do you really wish you were? Or where do you feel your own inadequacy? Where do you find yourself thinking, if only? Truth is, envy's got a hold on all of us in some form. Where is it? So that's the first how, how we all envy. Here's the second one, how it destroys us. Different one of our Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 10. Look at what it said when you get to that. 14.10. Nope, 14.30. Another round number. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. But envy rots the bones. That's what envy does, is it actually destroys inside out. And that means it's subtle, it's quiet, it's not even visible, but don't let the invisibility fool us. It's incredibly destructive. It's like rot in our very core. It's like the oak tree that went over in the storm, and you look at it afterwards and you realize it looked so big and so strong, and it was a thin veneer of bark over a fundamental core of rot. You don't want that kind of tree over your house or your car because it's not strong enough to stand in the storm, but it's big enough to do a lot of damage on the way down. That's what envy is. It's a time bomb. And it destroys us in three ways, two of them in this life, one in the next. So how does it destroy us? First, or A, if you want an outline, it destroys us because we never win. We always lose. You know, when it comes down to it, there is always somebody faster, bigger, stronger, smarter, richer, more successful. When we play that game, it never, ever works. So kids, to make the point, I brought in one of my favorite kid books, Yertle the Turtle from Dr. Seuss. So let me give you the beginning, if it's not so fresh in your mind, of Yertle the Turtle. On the faraway island of Salamisand, Yertle the turtle was king of the pond. A nice little pond. It was clean. It was neat. The water was warm. There was plenty to eat. The turtles had everything turtles might need, and they were all happy. Quite happy indeed. They were. Until Yertle, the king of them all, decided the kingdom he ruled was too small. I'm ruler, said Yertle, of all that I see, but I don't see enough. That's the trouble with me. With this stone for a throne, I can look down on my pond, but I cannot look down on the places beyond. This throne that I sit on is too, too low down. It ought to be higher, he said with a frown. If I could sit high, how much greater I'd be. What a king, I'd be ruler of all that I see." And as the story goes on, of course, Yertle sees thing after thing after thing that's higher and higher and higher than he is. He builds his throne higher and higher to try to match them until it all comes tumbling down into nothing. We never win. Book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verse 4, the preacher says, And I saw that all labor and achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless a chasing after the wind. And y'all, this is the Instagram crap, right? 
I mean, probably nothing has done more to trigger envy in modern American and Western consciousnesses than Instagram. Moms, you're on Instagram, you see that picture of that gal who looks fit and trim, somehow exercises six times a week while making organic baby food and doing nice crafts with her other um, kids. She is somehow keeping a perfectly clean house. She started a business on the side. She's doing all of this stuff, and you think, I can't believe. In fact, I read one mom's blog this week, and the mom just said, it is so expletive, hard to be an imperfect woman in a world full of perfect people. Now, you realize the trap of that. You're comparing their fake life to your real life. Almost nobody posts on Facebook or Instagram, I screamed at my kids, I was having a terrible day, it was a hot mess, and as I came out the door to the minivan, my neighbor was standing there, and I realized I hadn't put on a shirt. (laughs) That's not what you put on Instagram. It's a brave person who puts their real life up there, and there are very few of them. In fact, when it comes down to it, even the models don't look that way. The trap, the first way that envy destroys us is we never, ever win. B, if you want to keep an outline, the second way envy destroys us is it makes us monsters. Now, you might say, I was with you until now, Bill, but monsters, that seems a little bit strong. Hear me out. 1 Timothy chapter 3, no, Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Titus says that, in fact, Envy becomes hate. Chapter 3, verse 3, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. You see, the thing is, envy may start there, but it doesn't stay there. It grows, it strengthens, it metastasizes. It becomes hate. And, and you realize this, right? Moms, back to, back to that other mom, What do you say in your catty moments when you see all that stuff? You say, I hate her. And if you aren't a mom, you do the same thing. We feel the same thing. That person at work who always kills it on the PowerPoint presentations, he just always wins. Or that gal who's always getting promoted, or the guy who walks into the bar and always gets all the attention. What do we say? We're like, oh man, I hate him. I hate her. Now let's leave room for overstatement, but might not our language betray us a little bit? Might we actually be saying more than we realize? Because envy morphs into hate. Here's my proof. Mark 15.10. The Pharisees and Sadducees and leaders of the Jews have handed Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified. And look, Pilate's no dummy. He may be a little bit chicken. He may be unwilling to stand up to this, you know, this rest of Jerusalem he has, but he knows what's going on. So he says, you know what? I'm going to release to you one of two prisoners. And he picks pretty much the worst, most violent, most dangerous possible prisoner he could pick, a guy named Barabbas who's led an insurrection, a murderer, or he picks Jesus. And he says, which one do you guys want me to give you? And chapter 15, verse 10 tells us why he says this. It says, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. Here's my question about that. Do you think that when they first went into the priesthood, when they first became religious leaders, these guys said, you know what? 
someday at the very end of my career, at the pinnacle of my religious influence and vocation and power, you know what I hope I'll do? I hope I will miss when God sends us the Messiah, and instead of actually following what God does, I will become a murderer, handing him over to be unjustly killed by the Romans. That's what I hope the peak of my vocational life is going to be. I don't think that's what they said when they started in the priesthood. But envy morphs into hate. It metastasizes into things that are incredibly ugly. It makes us monsters. And third, or C, if you're keeping an outline, it destroys us not just in this life, but in the life to come. When we envy, we actually are playing with spiritual realities that affect eternity. Envy and hate lead us into death and destruction and even the judgment of hell. And if you were having trouble with it makes us monsters, now you're going, really? And I even find myself thinking, okay, look, I envied my neighbor's kitchen. You're telling me that puts me in the danger of hellfire forever? That just seems a little much, doesn't it? I opened up a picture on Facebook and thought, man, I really wish I were her. Now you're telling me that is a danger of hell? Hear me out. In Romans 1, another one of those passages where Paul lists thing after thing after thing, what the theologians call the fruit of the flesh, the acts of the flesh. Envy is again in the list, and at the end of Romans 1, here's what Paul writes about it in the last verse. He says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You realize what Paul's saying? He says that when we are caught in our own sin, we start to become blind about what we're dealing with. We start to not realize how dangerous the fire is that we're playing with. We start to excuse ourselves, because who wouldn't? Who would want to live with a continual consciousness that you're in peril of hell? So we just ignore it. We say it's really not that bad. But Paul says deep down, it is that bad. Because envy never stays as envy. It grows into worse and worse and worse. It leaves us in danger of even hell itself. Remember, a rot in our bones is invisible and slow, but incredibly painful and incredibly pervasive. And we don't see it until it's too late. And that leads us to the third question, the third how. How might the gospel free us from this? Because I don't know about you, but if I've got an infection, I want an antibiotic that's going to knock it out. If I've got gangrene, I want the surgeon, him or her, to do whatever he or she needs to do to cleanse me from that. If I've got a rot in my bones... I don't want to dally with it and play with it. I want it fixed. And in fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says, put away all envy. And you know what that means? It means that as a Christian, it is possible to actually stop envying. Now, not perfectly, not completely, not until Jesus comes back, but it is truly possible to grow in this. And that is an incredible, you might say, countercultural approach. CNN picked up Vanderwall's study. Here's what they write. They say the comparison is the thief of joy. And this, as it turns out, is one cliche that has a raft of empirical evidence backing it up. But there's another truth about social comparison. 
It's pretty much inevitable, so you might as well learn to use it to your advantage. Seek favorable comparisons if you'd like to feel happier, and seek unfavorable comparisons if you want to push yourself harder. You may not be able to quit your social comparison habit, but you can learn to make it work for you. You realize, and this is, by the way, also Vanderwall's conclusion, that envy is completely natural and it's absolutely unavoidable, it's inevitable. Do you realize what a pessimistic conclusion that is? You're never going to beat this thing. Well, here's the thing. For fallen humanity, envy is natural. Every social scientist is going to find that. But here the theologian knows better. Because not everything that is true ought to be so. And in fact, this is not how you were made. It's not what you and I were made to be. And in Christ, it's not what you either will be nor have to be. How do you get to a different spot? We get there by recognizing who we really need to be and what we really need to want. You see, here's what will not work. The Bible says the opposite of envy is godliness in contentment. 1 Timothy 6.6. The way we get to that is not going to be that we simply Buddhistly empty ourselves of all desire and quit wanting something. It just doesn't work that way. I don't care how ascetic you try to be, you and I were made to want things. And if you look back at those six verses from Proverbs we read, those six passages, something interesting is going on. Four of the six don't simply say, stop envying, quit it. What do they say? They actually put an object afterwards. They say, do not envy evildoers. When it really comes down to it, the question is, what do we want so deeply? Because I searched the Bible and I found there's actually one category of uses where the Bible uses this word jealousy and envy positively. You know when it does it? For God. That God is a jealous God. That God envies intensely for the spirit he's put in us. And you say, wait a minute, Bill, you just said that envy is like rot in our bones and now you're telling me God has it? How does that fit together? And here's how it fits. We envy the wrong things. We're busy chasing stuff and image and success and body, and God is busy caring deeply for the things that will not give us death but give us life, for justice and truth and righteousness, for goodness and peace and love. How would we cultivate that kind of self in ourselves? Well, the solution is to love each other's success more than our own. It's for me to love it when Ryan or Terrence or any of the other pastors preach better than I ever could. It's to love it when the guy in the cubicle next to you gets promoted and you don't. It's to love it that that other person was so athletically gifted that they made varsity. It's to love it that he or she got into William and Mary or UVA or wherever you want to go. Now, that doesn't come naturally to a fallen human being, does it? That's just not the way we're wired up, but it does come naturally in Christ. How can we do this? We can do this when we realize that this is what Jesus actually did for us. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 says, love does not envy. And we realize 
that Jesus was tempted in everything just like we are. Do you realize that means our Lord was tempted to envy? And if you think about it, there are all sorts of things Jesus might have envied. He was poor. He had no home. He had no spouse. In the end, all his friends turned away. I dare say Jesus would have envied air conditioning. But even more than this, realize how tempted Jesus must have been to envy God the Father. God, our triune God, for whatever reason of his own wisdom in redemption, decided that the three persons of the Godhead would have different relationships to Jesus' redemptive act, God the Father would give His only Son, an incredibly painful thing to do for our redemption, but God the Son, Jesus, would suffer on the cross the full wrath of sin. Do you not think that our Lord would be tempted to say, I'd rather have the Father's position in this one? But listen to these famous words from Philippians 2 you may have heard before. If you have any encouragement being united in Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves." Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." That's what Jesus did for us. What would it look like to cultivate that kind of godly contentment? Well, last passage to look at, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul has again rehearsed the gospel. In verse 4, he says that if we do not walk in the truth of grace of the gospel, we are open and vulnerable to envy. And in verses 6 to 8, he gives the antonym. He gives the opposite. 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Back to the earlier question. How could we do this? What would it look like? Well, it would be to love others above ourselves. What would it mean to actually love your spouse more than yourself? Or to love your coworkers' success more than your own. Or to love your kids more than yourself. Or here's an incredibly radical gospel one, maybe to love our enemies more than ourselves. Because don't you realize that's what Jesus did for you and me? While we were still enemies of him, he laid down his life for us. And if he can do that, then we, as we are conformed into his image, can do the same thing. So let me round it out. Who is it that you envy? What is it that you envy? What people are triggering that? What would it mean this week to in just some small way actually love their success instead of just grudgingly tolerate it at best? 
It would make us radically different people, wouldn't it? Maybe it's worth trying. Would you pray with me? God, our Father, we put these thoughts before you. We put our hearts before you. And we pray that in whatever places you would, you would convict us. That we would be different men and women in light of the grace we've received. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.